the Mindset Athlete Podcast and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian and owner of James Robert Fitness, which is an online training, nutrition and mindset coaching business. First of all, I'd like to thank Lauren Williams for suggesting for this quote to the show. An athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think and execute. Not because of some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete. By Chris Hoth. And each week on the Mindset Athlete, we like to bring you inspirational athletes, a message or experts talking about human optimization to teach you how to change your perception of your mindset and become 1% better. And on today's show, I've got Sarah Walsh. Those closest to Sarah have always known she was a Paralympic star in the making. Sarah was born with femula hemimelia, was 18th month old when her parents gave doctors the go-ahead to amputate her foot. That decision changed the course of her life. Were it not for that decision, Sarah would not have represented Australia in para-athletics. She would not have become a Paralympian. She would not have been given all the incredible opportunities that come with being an athlete on the world stage. Sarah says it's the best decision her parents have made for her and is the reason why they are her heroes. She was nine when she first began to sport seriously and after was gifted her first running blade. She promised herself she would become the best athlete she could be and as it happened Sarah's best was reaching the pinnacle event for her sport, the Paralympic Games. At the Rio 2016 Paralympics Sarah set an Oceana record of 4 metres 82, finishing 6 in the women's long jump T44. But as impressive as this was, it was not until the following year at the 2017 World Parathletic Championships in London when Sarah proved she had become a force to be reckoned with on the world stage by placing 4th in that event. In 2019, at the World Para-Athletic Championship in Dubai, Sarah claimed her first spot on the podium at a world championship level, winning bronze in the long jump. In three years since Rio, Sarah has well and truly established herself as a podium athlete, and with Tokyo 2020 Paralympics just around the corner, she is on the verge of winning her first Paralympic medal. So welcome on to the show, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. And obviously, I appreciate you giving up your, your time, obviously, as a busy athlete and with the run-up uh, to Tokyo not far away. Obviously, um, I know firsthand it's very precious, your time, so I really appreciate it. No worries. So beyond my introduction that I've given you, is there any little bit of a nugget that you'd like to add additionally to that to offer out to my audience? I guess for me, I've just come back from the World Championships in Dubai after winning a bronze medal. So I guess for me, growing up, I absolutely love sport and I always wanted to go and represent Australia at the highest level that I could. But now coming away with a bronze medal it is truly special and it's exciting times ahead for me with the lead up to Tokyo and all the future games and world championships um don't know what to expect anymore do you think the sky's the limit in terms of the possibilities of now now you've hit the heights of probably something that you envisioned to be I'm not going to say impossible because obviously if you, you, you would think like that, you wouldn't achieve it. But be it, it's been slightly out of your grasp, but now you've got it. What, why not be able to push on, obviously, to those, those barriers, push those barriers and push those limits of, obviously, your mindset in terms of being able to achieve those? Yeah, exactly. When I first started in the sport, I was just a kid and I got the opportunity to represent Australia for the first time when I was 15 years old. So I was quite a lot younger than the rest of my competition. They're all at least five or six years older than me. So now I've turned 21 to win a world championship medal at that age as well. There's not too many athletes that get to do that. So I have still quite a long career ahead of me and it is possible with more strength, more training under my belt to go bigger and further than what I thought I could do as a young kid. Like as a kid, I just wanted to make an Australian team. 
but now I'm there to win medals and jump as far as I possibly can, which is super exciting. So what what is the shift for you, per se, from going from just having to represent your country uh, and, and wear the kit with pride to have that shift to go from what a sense is, in my eyes, is, is very much going from a developmental stage to one of performance. But for you, where does that shift occur? I think for me, the first few games and world champs that I went to were just about the experience, getting out there, competing against the best in the world. But then in 2017 at the World Championships in London, I ended up finishing fourth and lost the bronze medal in the final round. So it kind of put me on the map that I could jump just as well as the girls who are a little bit older than me, who have years of experience under their belt. And I think the shift from then to now is that I'm just as capable as them. It doesn't matter about my age or how much training I have under my belt. I'm capable of jumping the distance distances that are required to win a medal. And now I'm no longer there just to participate and fill the numbers. I'm there to win a medal and be a competitor and put a jump out there that's going to be world-class. Do you think that fourth place has kind of spurred you on then because nobody likes to finish there? Yeah, definitely. I think the bronze medal being taken away in the final round that day, I probably didn't deserve to win it with the jump that I did, but it made me realise that I'm capable of being up there on the podium. And so you have two years of training to get through before you get to compete at the next World Championships again. So it was two years of working really hard and proving to myself that I had earned that medal that I won in Dubai, that I'd put so many years of hard work and training into it. So when I got there, I just wanted to jump as far as I could and that distance put me on the podium. And you think, obviously, for people that haven't seen your, your classification or discipline, be it on TV, internet, how would you describe it? Because is it more technically difficult than, per se, the able-bodied long jump because of the, the added, um, how would I put this? Uh, it's not necessarily a difficulty of using the blade, but having the additional pressures of utilising a blade to then have to jump as opposed to be, you know, the 100-metre guys going in a straight line. Yeah, I think for long jump, it can be a little bit difficult. You've obviously got to nail your run up and then land on the board. You've got 20 centimetres to land on the board. And if you go over, it's a foul. So it's quite a technical sport. But I guess for me, it depends how much force I put into the blade as to how much I get out of it. So if you make one mistake in the first two steps of your run up, that's going to cost you when you get to the board, when you do your jump could mean that you're behind the board, over the board. So I think for me, I jump off my prosthetic leg. There's nothing that's been proven as to whether it gives you an advantage or your disadvantage, but it does come down quite a lot for me as to where I place the blade in relation to my body and things like that as to how far I can jump into the pit. But also when I take off, there's lots of stuff that can happen in the air that's not necessarily due to my disability that can cost me distance as well. So I think it's a mixed bag. It's definitely sometimes it is the blade that lets me down and my disability, but other times it's just the fact that I haven't done something right with my arms, which there's nothing wrong with my arms or my left leg. So my good leg hasn't done something right, which has let me down or my blade has jumped or has given me good propulsion, but I've just shut down and not used that to the best of my ability. So I guess for long jump, a lot can happen. But I absolutely love the fact that every jump is a new chance to improve, a new chance to improve on what you did, fix what you did in the last run. And you get six of them in a competition, which is, for me, more exciting than standing on the track and running 100 metres, hoping that you get everything right in the 12 seconds that's there. Do you, in, in, in your opinion then, Sarah, do you think your discipline is... Obviously, you can have your bias, but obviously, I just listen to you, you speak. I would say you've got more that can go wrong in your discipline than per se would argue with somebody on the track. Yeah, I guess for them, they've got to start. So they use starting blocks. After that, you kind of just run as fast as you can. For me, I start, I run as fast as I can for five seconds, and then all of a sudden, I have to jump as far as I can into a pit. 
So as much as I'm trying to think about running fast, you're also trying to think about jumping far too. So there's lots of components that go into it, which is something that I love, that it's just not get out there, focus on running as fast as you can. There's so many other little things that go into making the perfect jump. And even when you do what you think is the perfect jump or a personal best, there's still something that you can improve on. There's always those one percenters that can make a huge difference. And and obviously each competitor is going to differentiate, I don't think this is a word, but have a difference of obviously their propulsion using the blade as opposed to using their leg or their good leg, should I say. Why did you choose to use to be your takeoff leg as your blade as opposed to be your sound side? If you saw me do long jump off my sound side, you'd really question how I'm an athlete in general. But for us long jumpers who are amputees, all of us jump off our blades. So if you have a blade, why not use it, I guess? Like in some instances, it is better than jumping off your good leg. You're not getting any force up through your foot or your calf or your ankle, anything like that, just because you don't have it on your prosthetic side. Obviously, nothing's been proven as to whether or not it is an advantage and it can spring you super far into the pit. But I guess for me, I use it because that's my stronger side because of my blade. My muscles in that aren't as strong because it is my amputated side as my sound leg. But that's the way I can jump the furthest. And if that's what's going to put me on the podium, use it to my advantage. Exactly. But then probably people would argue if they did see you jump with your good side, they'd probably say they're better than you're better than them. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. <laughs> obviously coming back to, to the to the very beginning and and again, obviously you talking about obviously the closest, nearest and dearest to you. I've always known that you were gonna be a Paralympic star in the making. Do you think you have a very much a positive upbringing, a very much, you could say in a sense, a bubble around you to kind of facilitate that to obviously materialise? Obviously, you need still to have hard work um, and, and talent to be able to strive to achieve all that. But do you think the building blocks at the very beginning and the core have been there and been kind of instrumental in that? facilitating you along the way and at the early part of your career yeah definitely I've had so many people over the span of my athletics career and growing up as well support me my parents they were huge in making me realize that I could just get out there like any other kid could and play sport I because I was born with my disability so I was born with a condition called fibula hemimelia My parents made the decision to have my foot amputated when I was 18 months old and they never wrapped me in cotton wool after that and said that I couldn't do anything or because I had a prosthetic leg, it wasn't worth me trying different sports that I couldn't do them. They just let me get out there and figure things out for myself, whether or not I could do it. So they always pushed me to show others that despite having a disability, I could get out there and do things just like anyone else. My coaches that I've had, throughout my career the ones that first started with me when I was a kid who taught me the basics of athletics to then the ones that showed me that I was capable of um, representing Australia and standing on the podium there's been so many people in my career support me and show me that I am capable of being the best athlete that I can be and you think with your disability now or be it limb loss limb difference however people want to call it be it if they've got difficulties with the wording can you explain for people as best as you can because it's not it's not the easier thing to to visualize with a lot of impairments but to do to to be before you had the amputation what was your diagnosis descriptively what would you the limb look, look like back then before you had the amputation? Yep. So my condition is called fibula hemimelia, which essentially just means that when I was born, I was missing one bone below my knee on the right side, supposed to have two. And then I had a small foot attached as well, didn't really form properly, didn't have all of the toes. So the options that my parents had back then were to amputate through my ankle, which is essentially just amputating my foot. And I wear prosthetic leg ever since then which is exactly 
what happened or limb lengthening. So they try and stretch out the bones and muscles that I could potentially have there to make them the same length as my other leg, which would have meant that I would have spent most of my childhood in hospitals, many surgeries and things like that. So my parents thought for the best quality of life for her to get out there just to be like any other kid, we'd amputate the foot and it was honestly the best decision. I wouldn't be the athlete that I am today or the person that I am today if I didn't have that amputation when I was a kid and it was the best thing that my parents chose for me. Would you have liked to have had that decision made and be put in your hands obviously at later life or do you think um, them taking away that decision has put you in a better position obviously as a 21 year old now in hindsight? I think for me them making the decision was probably best the younger you have the surgery and the amputation, the less likely you are to remember things. I don't get any phantom pain or I haven't had any other operations on my amputated side since that surgery. So it's never caused me any problems. But I do know from other people who have the same condition um, who went through limb lengthening as they get older after all these operations and surgeries, their leg still isn't right. So at the end of the day, they choose to have it amputated or those that choose to have it amputated a bit later in their life, there's always some sort of complication or issue and they've just wasted their childhood being in hospitals and having all these surgeries. So for me, I had that amputation. I don't remember a thing and I've just been able to get on with life and live it to the best that I can. So do you think you've, well, I won't say you've never accounted adversely because that's not true because we're virtually, well, not one in the same, but be having been born with the disability we obviously and I don't want to put words into your mouth but obviously I think you probably think the same way in terms of because you're born with a disability as opposed to having a traumatic experience like you said at a later life you don't really see it as a difficult situation because okay this is the hand I've been dealt with I've got a supportive network around me that gonna kind of kind of thrust you into the depths of why don't you go out and try everything possible? Obviously you've got to adapt along the way, but there's nothing going to stop you except yourself. And I think this is probably something that you would agree with. Yeah, definitely. I think in the face of adversity or overcoming something, people can either choose to rise above it and make the best situation out of what some people might say is a bad situation or let it crumble and take over their lives. And for me, It's just a leg and a foot. It's not something that you really need. And I've been able to travel the world, represent my country and experience so many things that people my age don't get that opportunity to do. And I'm well aware that if I didn't have my amputation or I was born with two normal legs, I wouldn't be doing that. So I'm very lucky and fortunate to be in the situation that I am. Whereas most people who look around and they see someone missing their leg, the first thing is, oh, poor you, how are you supposed to live your life like that? But for me, it's the best thing that could have ever happened to me. But then, Sarah, some people might argue more probably the British community would say, but the Australians, from the outside perspective, are very sporty anyway. So what's to say that you wouldn't have got some ounce of sporting prowess if you were everybody this is all hypothetical but you were more likely to aspire to those successes in the sporting arena because of your environment being in Australia as opposed to maybe other places in the world yeah definitely I think Australia as a whole are really sporting country but I feel for me I still would have been involved in sport but I believe that my story itself isn't about a girl that was naturally talented at what she does. It was just about someone that worked really hard because she wanted to go and represent her country and that's what she wanted to do. I was just determined to do that. So I wasn't going to let anything stop me. So I feel like most people aren't naturally talented at long jump, whether you are a para-athlete or able-bodied. So for me, I just wanted to go and represent Australia at the Paralympics. So I put my mind to that and I just worked hard for it. So how so when does it go from a dream to an aspiration to becoming a reality in the timeline for you? 
So I remember watching the Beijing Paralympics back on the TV in 2008. So I was 10 years old, sitting with my parents on the couch at home and telling them that when I grew up, I wanted to be a Paralympian. I had no idea what sport I wanted to do, if I would be any good at any sport to be able to go and represent Australia. But I just knew that I wanted to be a Paralympian. So I found athletics, athletics the year later. So I was nine years old through school. Was absolutely hopeless at all the all the events. Couldn't run 100 meters, let alone 200 meters. Couldn't do long jump for the life of me, but absolutely loved it. And also tried shot put as well. But I'm not the strongest person, upper body, so bit of a struggle. But I fell in love with it, and I just picked up training with a coach after school, representing my school, my athletics club, my state, and then eventually in 2014 got the call up to go and represent Australia over in Glasgow for a lead-up event to the Commonwealth Games and then World Championships the following year selected on that team and then Rio in 2016. So I think for me it was just a little girl who had a big dream and wasn't going to let people tell her that she couldn't do it but being in Rio and competing there was really special and it will always hold a special place in my heart. Make me feel old that you're saying you're watching the, the Beijing games and me competing in it. So, <laughs> <laughs> but obviously, it, it, it's nice to hear. Obviously, the well, you you are now not the up and coming athlete. You 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 guys are probably gonna you've taken over and probably gonna lead the way for the for the next generation that is to come. So it is nice to be to be one I could use my ego to a certain extent I'd have an, I'd have some impact on your career be it it's maybe not my sport per se that's that's been the the impact for you to make the decision to obviously go to the heights to where you've gone but obviously you've then taken it on yourself to take it to the next level so from that basis it's it's good and bad but it brings up good memories for me uh, of what is now well, 12 years ago um, but obviously it's good to see that you and so many others have used that as a vehicle as probably motivation to say well why not me be it yours was uh, Beijing a lot of British athletes that have come through the ranks would have been London uh, would, would it have been a home games so let me ask you this, Sarah, then. Obviously, you wouldn't have been alive for the, the, the games being in your own country back in 2000. I actually was. So I was born in 1999. So I was actually at the games in Sydney, but don't remember a thing because I was only two. What, what would it feel like if it ever transpired that you got the opportunity in your career to compete at home again? Well, it's actually funny you say that because yesterday it was announced that Brisbane in Queensland were going to put a bid in for, I think it's 2032 to have a home games here, which would be super exciting, but it would also mean that I'd be really old when I'd be competing at those. So I'd be kicking on to 34, which might be a little bit of a stretch, but it would be an honour and a privilege to be able to represent your country at a home games. I know many athletes that did it back in 2000 or got to compete at the Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast two years ago. And I think it's something pretty special to be able to put on the green and gold and represent your country overseas. But I think it'd be truly special to be able to do that in your home's, home stadium with the entire crowd cheering for you. Do you think, uh, obviously it's a difficult question to ask because it's all speculative in terms of even if they got the bid but if obviously everything aligned and it did happen and transpired to occur what position would it put you I know it's hypothetical because we're talking about well nearly 13 years in the future but in terms of where would you have to say because you're saying it's going to be a stretch would you been at your end of your career would you hang on in terms of keep going to try and make that or would you take the decision well I'd rather walk away than get pushed I think for me 
Although I may be 34 then, a lot of the girls that I compete against still are in their early 30s, mid-30s. The girl from Japan who won the long jump in Dubai, she's 34. So if she can win a world championship title at 34, there's nothing that says that you have to stop competing as soon as you hit 30 or anything like that, that there really is no time on my career or lifespan on it. So I think if the opportunity was there and I was fit and healthy and capable of jumping quite well, I would definitely jump on it. I don't think it would be an opportunity that I'd turn down to have a home games would be really special. And if it meant me hanging on a few more years in my career and training hard like I had been for the years prior, it'd probably be all worth it in the end. So do you think this one be obviously you've still got selection up in the in the air for next year and there's no guarantee like I, people will question me well isn't this person a certainty of going I'd like not necessarily because there's loads of things behind the scenes that obviously the general populace either are not aware of or maybe not look at whereas being on the inside of it there's no guarantee of anything until you obviously get there but be it on a put a positive spin on it, do you think this is as close as you're going to get to home games, for, be it for you guys as Australians, having it in, in Japan? Yeah, I think Japan will be the closest that we'll get for the next few. Obviously, with Paris and LA, they're a little bit further away. And I was in Japan the middle of this year for the Japanese nationals, and it was an incredible experience. They are so ready to have a Paralympic Games there. The crowds and the people are so excited to have para-athletes competing there, especially Aussies as well. They're so supportive of us. For me, having a couple of Japanese athletes in my competition, it's going to be awesome if I do get to go to compete there with them. And I think Japan and Australia have always had a pretty close relationship. So it's going to be an amazing Games, that's for sure. And then when you're asked this question, Sarah, I know it's a difficult one to answer, be it when you have to compare one game to the next, how do you put the euphoria, the emotion, um, to a certain extent, your own experience into words to be able to describe it to other people that probably can't really feel the, the emotion that it takes to obviously be in that bubble for two, three weeks? Yeah, I think for me, Rio being my first Games, being the dream come true for the little girl who sat on her couch, it was quite overwhelming after I competed. I did do a lot of crying. After I competed, I didn't jump as far as what I wanted to. Ended up finishing sixth, which to call yourself sixth best in the world at a Paralympic Games is something amazing. But my coach at the time, he said to me, don't worry about it. He was trying to tell me all the things that I did good in my jump. And I just turned to him and said, look, I really don't care what you have to say. I just became a Paralympian and that means more to me than any distance or any position or any medal could on that day. And I still stand by that. I guess I call myself a Paralympian for the rest of my life because of that moment. And it was incredibly special. But the Paralympic Games as a whole, they're really undescribable. When you put in a village for three weeks with people who are all like-minded, who are all like you, who where the majority all have a disability and if you don't, you're kind of an outcast or something like that, whereas in everyday life, people with a disability are seen as the minority. They're not the ones who are walking around the street or anything like that. It's always able-bodied people that you see. And then on the off chance, you'll see someone with a disability. Whereas in a Paralympic village, all you ever see is people with a disability. And then on the off chance, you'll see an able-bodied person. So to be surrounded by people who all want to go to the Games, do their best, represent their country, it is an, an incredible experience. Well, I'd echo that, and I think that putting it into that that perspective is is a nice one because obviously it 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 puts that element of a human touch. Be it you're going from what is normality, um, and obviously that word is not the best place, to obviously something that is 
fairly uncommon in, in most day-to-day life would be people surrounded by more, more disabilities. But do you think because obviously sports, sports are going to stick together most of the time, even in that, that, that highest of accolades what the Paralympic is, do you think it's a good one because obviously it, it forces you to get to know people uh, not necessarily from different teams, but be it with it, even within your team to get to know different people that you not, not, not would not normally uh, cross paths with most of the time, because obviously it depends on um, what part of the, the world you're coming from and how close knit of community that's been instilled. Yeah, definitely. Even within your own team here in Australia, our athletics team is quite large and we are quite close. So when you go to a Paralympic Games, when you're surrounded by lots of people from all different sports who have different backgrounds, but they all just have the common goal of being there to compete. It is pretty special when you sit down in the dining hall and you're either sitting next to one of your teammates, getting to know them or someone from a completely different country it is pretty special to be able to do that. And it's not many opportunities that you do get to meet other people from different countries who come from a sporting background or meet the rest of your Australian team who have a disability and who are there to compete. Although we live in the same country, we're so spread out and everyone is travelling the world at their own paces competing. So when you're all brought together, it is an amazing experience. Do you think once you make it to the heights of that, do you think disability kind of doesn't really, I won't say doesn't really exist, but the word doesn't really have a meaning now because I'm not going to look at you on the, st- on, or we'll, we'll call it on the starting line, but technically it's not for your, your discipline, but I'm not going to look at your disability. I'm going to look at your ability and want to beat you for that and that, that alone. And I think it's probably the media probably looks to overhype the story at times. Whereas obviously you and I being face to face, okay, it's not going to happen because I'm a male and you're a female, but, but just for, for argument's sake, we don't look at your life. We don't look at it like each other's life stories. You overcome some sort of adversity to get there. I've done the same and we're going to do our best in our own ability to beat one another yeah I definitely think when you're at a Paralympic Games or a World Championships at the end of the day whoever you line up against to compete you're all elite athletes you are the best in the world at what you do so it doesn't matter what your disability is or your background or your story at the end of the day there you're you're there to compete as an elite athlete as one of the best in the world and as much as the media will use your story to pump you up or get media attention and things like that. You are an elite athlete, just like anyone else that would stand on the start line at an Olympic Games. They've all got a backstory, but at the end of the day, they're competitors and elite athletes. So what would you say is the difference maker in terms of a mindset between uh, an elite athlete, doesn't matter if it's able-bodied or or para-athlete now, uh, versus the person in the street? I think for me and the person in the street, I absolutely love what I do. So most people, when they go out to do exercise or something that they love, they're passionate about what they do, which is exactly what I am. But I also want to be the best. I want to be one of the best in the world. So I'm driven to stand on the podium. I'm driven to put on the green and gold. I'm driven to represent Australia, whereas other people they don't really have that passion or drive to want to be the best in the world. They're just doing what they do if it is in exercise just to be fit and healthy, which there's nothing wrong with that. But for me, as well as being fit and healthy, I want to be the best. I want to be up there with the best in the world. So I think I love what I do, but I also do it because I have a really big end goal at the end. So I love what you say there in terms of the the passion, the pride, and the drive to obviously be the best that you can be. But is there no part of training that you absolutely loathe? 
At the moment, yes, because I only started training back last week after two and a half weeks off. So it is an absolute struggle for me at the moment to get out of bed in the morning. Every muscle in my body aches, bend down on the ground to pick something up. And I just sometimes think I should just leave it on the ground because it's not worth all the pain that I'm going to be put through to get down. But at the end of the day, when I have those moments now, I just think of my end goal and winning a medal at a world championships, you just forget about all those times that you absolutely hated what you were doing or you're in pain because you've pushed yourself to your limits. And at the end of the day, when you're standing on the podium with a bronze medal around your neck, nothing else matters. I think for me, I always absolutely love training. I love being able to push myself and showing what my body is capable of and showing that I can do things despite my disability. So I think for me, sometimes when I'm in pain or I'm hating what I'm doing, the good outweighs the bad. And do you think because that is maybe not seen, especially not once you make make a Paralympics, people don't assume that those those sacrifices exist, that commitment, that consistency that you need to have to be able to obviously make that reality exist. But do you think, by obviously me bringing it up and making people more aware of this being the occurrence that the, an athlete does not operate 365 days a year as like you were talking about passion, pride and determination to get there. Okay. You've got a willingness to push through that thought process. Oh, I wish I could stay in bed a bit longer. Um, obviously this time of the year now it's nearly summer for you. So that, that went the it's the complete opposite for people in the Northern Hemisphere. This would be the time of the year where, oh, can I not just stay in bed because it's cold outside? But because people don't see that, do you think when you raise the argument of, or or per se, the general populace will raise the argument of, I I, I lack the willpower to do it. Do you think when they see somebody that obviously uh, from a physiological standpoint and an exercise standpoint is obviously pushing way outside um, their their limitations, their barriers and their, their extremes to, to what they see is possible. Do you think it kind of gets them to look at it from a different perspective as suppose, well, if Sarah, James, whoever struggles with this, obviously not on a daily occurrence, but once in a blue moon... What, who am I to kind of not be willing to step outside of the, the the norm? And obviously, if the goal is big enough that you talked about, the end goal outweighs the comfort that you're at, at present. Do you think they'd be more willing to obviously step outside of their comfort zone? Yeah, I think for us athletes, whether Paralympian or Olympian, you get to compete every four years at one of those games and the public will sit on their couch at home and watch what is it, whatever's on the TV screen. So for me, they'll get to see me do six long jumps and that's it. They don't know what I've gone through to actually get there, but they're quite happy to sit there and judge whether or not I do well, do bad. Why didn't I win the medal? But for me, I guess I've put all the hard work and effort and training in, but I only get one chance to show whether or not that's all paid off and everyone has their good and bad days and you have one day every four years to make sure that you get it right and sometimes athletes don't get it right but sometimes they do and I think for me as an athlete as much as I want to show people that I'm a good athlete that I can jump really far and that I'm capable of winning medals at the end of the day it's also really important for me to share my stories because not everyone is an elite athlete. And I think people find it quite hard to relate to the fact that here I am, a girl with one leg going, representing her country, winning medals, whereas they're just sitting at home, eating popcorn, eating chocolate, watching the television. And it's quite far-fetched for them to relate to me and things like that. So I think bringing it up in whether it's podcasts, daily lives, that athletes do struggle, that they're not perfect, that they're also human too is really important because I, as much as I don't want the media to talk about my story when I'm competing, I do have a story and I'm quite happy to share it 
and be open and vulnerable and show people that I'm not just an athlete. I'm not just a Paralympian. I'm also human too. Do you think that bias that the general public has, do they think it, it, it stems from because you've got that drivenness, the passion, the pride and the determination, you kind of, through the number of years that you've kind of gone on, built up that repetition, you kind of go on autopilot. So they do, do you think they assume that you're robotic in terms of one case of the word? Yeah, I think I've done it too. You sit on the couch and you watch sport and everyone is so passionate about sport and wants their team or their players or their country to do their best. So you sit there and when they don't, you're like, why can't you get it together? Why can't you jump that far? Why can't you win a medal in that moment? And it's quite easy for people to sit back and judge. And I've done it too. I watched the Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast from my TV and one night long jump was on and everyone was fouling. And I was sitting there, why are you fouling? Why can't you get it together? And then I realised, hang on a second, if I'm in that position, I know exactly what it's like and I know the pressure that's put on you in that moment to get it right. So I think everyone has passions and dreams and goals. They don't have to be sport-related. Many people want to succeed in their work career, their family life. They're passionate about that. At the end of the day, I'm an elite athlete who's passionate about being an elite athlete. But there are so many other ways and things that people can be passionate about and achieve success in that. It doesn't have to be sport. And if the public looked at it like that, instead of them wanting to be a, a good athlete, be a good person or be good at what you do in work and strive for the best in that instead of striving for the best in your sport, I think that's what the public should look for when they watch athletes on the TV rather than sitting back and judging them, asking why aren't they performing to their best. Do you think it comes down to that relatability factor? Because like you said, it's if if you're not goal-orientated towards be it sport or exercise, it's placing that drive and passion towards what you want to excel at. And I think I, I'm very much one, because I've been, done it, been there, done that and got the T-shirt, I won't judge. People will say, well, why don't you come out of retirement? Because you're not old. I can look in the mirror and say, yes, it'd be nice to get to that end goal. But because most of the people that will question that haven't been there, they don't look at the, the former and say, well, what's the sacrifice that athletes have to endure to get there? Whereas I've done it. I like this nice shiny thing, but I don't, I'm not willing to put in the work. So I'm content in saying I've had my time in the spotlight. It's your guys time to shine. If I got the opportunity as a spectator, that would be nice because I don't have to do the hard work. I can just what I can sit back, enjoy it all. And lap up the the atmosphere from a different perspective. So I think I'm I obviously it's been difficult to be able to move away from that because it's you'd never want to call time on on your career, be it sporting or whatever. But obviously, sport is only finite. It's you only got a um, limited amount of time within that environment. For some, it could be, could be shorter lived than others, but that's very um, individual in terms of looking at it from that perspective. But I think that's where it, it does lie. It is that relatability factor. I know deep down in terms of what I was able to achieve was good. And it would be generally people that haven't achieved will knock those successes. Whereas you want to push further with your career, which is commendable because you probably have another goal above where you've got to. So, because obviously the first one is to, to, to wear the tracksuit, which is probably, um, probably more and more, uh, people will be becoming either disabled or born with it can aspire because they've got role models within that domain. Whereas you go back, well, 20 years for me, 
you have okay, you have Tony Tony Gray Thompson um, and certain other athletes, but that's it. But more of your role models will be in their body uh, arena. So I think now with you talk about the spotlight being shown on on people's stories, you can relate more to the individuals like yourself and say, "Well, I want to be just like you." Future down the line, as opposed to being, um, for argument's sake, I don't know, the next David Beckham. Yeah, I think obviously being an elite athlete isn't for everyone. What I've sacrificed in my life to be able to not only go to a Paralympics, but also to win a medal, for most people having to sacrifice those things, they wouldn't do it. Like giving up holidays, giving up time with friends, family, nights out with friends, things like that. For me, at the end of the day, I couldn't really care less if I missed going out one Saturday night with my friends or couldn't really care less if I missed out on things that other friends were doing. I knew what I wanted at the end of the day and that was to go to a Paralympic Games and not a lot of people would be able to say, I'm quite happy to give up most things in my life to solely focus on training and it it does take a special kind of person to do that. At the end of the day, when you do compete, no one sees what you've gone through in the years or the weeks or the months leading up to that Games and I think most people can relate more when they do see that though which then leads back to this having your story in the media and showing everyone that you are a human being as well as an elite athlete. What would you say to the people that would say that's quite self-centered? Obviously I know the answer, but in terms of because I've lived it, but what would you say to that individual saying, well, who could blame your friends for not wanting to be around you long-term because you are so hyper-driven in terms of what you want to achieve? Um, I believe being an athlete, you are quite self-centered. You want the best for you. And at the end of the day, for me, the people that want to support me and want to be in my life and support my journey and my career, they're here. Those that can't understand what I do and why I do it, they're not. And I think for me, you find the people that love you and love what you do and you hold them close to you because at the end of the day, they're the ones that will support you no matter what. And Everyone else around you, yeah, you might have friends that you haven't seen in years but don't understand why you do or what you do. I think they're not worth having in your life full-time if they're not going to support you and support what you do. And I think you just find your tribe, the tribe that wants to support you and you love them hard because at the end of the day, they're the ones that help you succeed. For me, doing long drum, it's an individual support sport. I'm out there by myself. I'm not competing with a team or for someone else, but I have a huge team behind the scenes, my family, my friends, coaches, physios that support me and want the best for me. And they're the people that you hold close to you. I'd say you're wise beyond your years. Um, where, where do you think that wisdom comes from? Because I, that took me a long time to get to where you're at in terms of talking. I'm in my mid, almost my mid-30s and I, I, I think the same way. I did not think like that in my 20s. I think for me, the people that support me, they've taught me well and things that I've experienced in my life, you just know and learn that if people want to be in your life and support you, they will. And those people that are in my life today, I love them so much and they support me so much and so I stick by them and they stick by me. And I think if you can find it doesn't have to be 20, 30, 50 people in your life, you only need a few to help you support your dreams and goals. And I think at the end of the day, most people my age think the more friends you have, the better it is. For me, I'm the opposite. I know who my friends are and it's a small group of people and they support me and I support them in what they do too. So what do you do? Because I had an athlete reach out to me not too long ago um, over the last couple of days in terms of they wanted to increase their... I'll call it social media. I'll call it social media presence because that's what it is. But to ensure, and they will probably saw it as increasing their presence and popularity to be able to leverage certain things. 
what do you do then? Because obviously from talking as the way you do, those are complete polar opposites. Yeah, I think there's Sarah Walsh, the person who has her friends, her family, and then there's Sarah Walsh, the brand, who has her social media, who posts, who does her presentations and things like that. And yes, they're the same person, but at the end of the day, I need to create a brand for myself as an athlete. So when I'm competing, the public can get to know me. But then at the same time, I also need to have my friends who are close to me, my family who are close to me, who will support me when times get tough and things like that. So I think it's just really important to know that you want to share with the public the raw you, but you also want your friends and your family to be able to support you. And I think the most important thing for me that I do on social media or that I believe in is to be as honest and real as possible. There's no point in trying to make posts or post about things or take photos that you think is what everyone else wants to see. It's about being true to who you are and what you believe in. And at the end of the day, if offers get shown or given to you for social media or to do interviews, TV, advertisements and things like that, I think I pick what's close to my heart and what I believe in. It's There's no point in picking an offer or an opportunity that comes up just because it's there. I think I'm really cautious in what I pick and choose and what aligns with how I want to be seen as a person, as an athlete in the media. Well, so that for a young person, that's very difficult because it's what you perceive to be right for you and 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 as you were talking what is obviously within i'll I'll use the american term now your wheelhouse in terms of being right for you and what's going to be right for your brand going forward and like the longevity of it being associated with something be it for good or bad you've got to weigh up those consequences and i think an athlete is very well positioned for that because you do think of find out examples of from from a performance standpoint in your head as to different um scenarios that could occur just by tweaking certain aspects of technique and and you've not physically done it yet but you can imagine it happening so i think it's relatable from that you can be able to instill that kind of belief to a certain extent it's not really a thought process and be able to relate it to every anything and anything within your life to be able to make the right decision for you yeah I think for me I don't want to be seen as an athlete who has it all who has it all together who's better than everyone else I want to be seen as someone that's relatable who people will understand that she's gone through a lot to be where she is it hasn't been handed to her on a plate and I think at the end of the day everyone has goals and dreams and for me I had one of those and I still have goals and dreams and it's about the journey and the process that it takes to get there and achieve those so everyone has goals and dreams they all have a journey and a process to get there so by sharing my story in the media or with people individually if it helps them achieve their goals and their dreams it's all worthwhile in the end because helping one person in their life, whether or not you know it, is an amazing thing. And do you think you're very conscious of the process on a day-to-day basis then? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's all well and good to be the world's greatest athlete or to be the best athlete possible. But at the end of the day, if you're not a good person and a genuine person, has it really been worth it? My career will finish someday and at the end of it, I might have a few medals to my name, a really good long jump distance, but that's all I have. You need to build a brand, build the type of person that you want to be as well because when your career is finished, that's what you have. You have the good person within you and your brand that you've created over the years not being the best sporting person. So you're trying to create well I'll call it another identity because that's what it is and not be be when you come time to hang up your 
your blade be Sarah whilst the athlete? Yeah, I think that's important. You, I'm not always going to be Sarah Walsh, the athlete. Yes, I'll always be Sarah Walsh, the Paralympian, but there's so much more to a person than that identity. There's more to a person than just being an athlete. So I think it's really important that I show people that, that one, I'm relatable because I'm not just an athlete, that I'm just like anyone else. I study at uni. I work part-time. I'm just like any other 21-year-old, but I also am an elite athlete as well. Do you think, obviously coming back full circle now with this identity, do you think being born with a disability kind of helps you be able to jump from one box to the other? Yes and no. I think everyone has the capacity and capability to create their own identity, be the person that they want to be. I guess my disability is only one part of who I am. Like everyone will take one look at you and see that you've got one leg. So therefore you're disabled in their eyes or they take a look at you when you're running down the long jump runway on the track and you're a Paralympian or an elite athlete in their eyes. But to my friends and family, I'm just Sarah. I'm just a person just like anyone else. And I think when I go to uni or work, I'm a uni student or I'm uh, employee just like everyone else and I've never been treated differently because of my status as an athlete or because of having a disability so I think yes my disability has given me the opportunity to have more of an identity in my life but it's not the defining point of me okay. and my final uh, my penultimate question should I say to you would be this then if you had to sit down with any athlete dead or alive who would that individual be and why? Oh, that's a really tough one. I think I would have to say I've already sat down with him and I'm quite close with him, but Kurt Fernley, who's one of Australia's greatest Paralympic athletes, his story and the stories that he has and the wisdom and advice that he has, there's not many people that I know that has that. And he's an incredible person as well as being an athlete. And I think that's something really special and something that I aspire to be like, to be a genuine person at the end of the day is all that most people strive to be, to be a happy person. And he's exactly that. And my final question to Sarah, before we wrap up the episode, if you had to summarize what we've been speaking about today into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? No matter what your dreams and goals are, how crazy or big they might sound to you, you are capable of achieving them. I was a little girl that sat on her couch and wanted to be a Paralympian and a few years later I was a Paralympian. So I think if you put your mind to something, no matter how big or crazy it is, you can make it happen. I'm not naturally talented at what I do. It's just hard work and determination and a great support team around me that have gotten me to where I am today. So once again, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's been my absolute pleasure. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friends and do let Sarah and I know what you thought of the episode by tagging us over on Instagram at Sarah underscore Walsh 14 and that's the number 14 and at James O Roberts 11 and that is the number 11. And you can do the same on Twitter and Facebook. And if you had any questions, don't hesitate to shoot those over as well. And finally, don't forget to check out her Dare to Stare t-shirts in aid of Limb for Life, an organisation that provides information and support for amputees around Australia. Limbs for Life has been a huge part of Sarah's life and have been supporting Sarah and her family for over 10 years. Sarah's genuine gratitude towards Limb for Life is why she is excited to design the Dare to Stare t-shirts to raise awareness for limb loss and limb difference. She would love to see us all support her campaign by investing in her shirts, wearing them with pride and spreading this campaign as far as possible. So let's help Sarah use this vehicle of the Dare to Stare t-shirts to raise funds to support this amazing organisation. And finally, and as always, do check out my free content at fitamputee.co.uk and click on the tab resources. 
but not forgetting I've also set up a new Facebook group especially for this podcast which you can find by typing The Mindset Athlete on Facebook so make sure to check those links out they will be in the description you can find all the show notes at mindsetgame.lipson.com under the category sports so once again thanks for listening and I'll catch you next week for another episode of the Mindset Athlete Podcast